The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had, and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, he sold everything that he had, and he bought it. Treasure. I want to talk about treasure this morning. When I think about treasure, the first thing that comes to mind for me, for some reason, is like uh, pirates and like Jack Sparrow and Yo-Ho-Ho and a bottle of rum and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know if that's what that like passage is all about. Probably not. Um, but that's what I think about. Treasure is a neat word because treasure can be used as a noun and a verb. You probably have treasures in your life. The noun version of a treasure is like the, the thing that you treasured, the thing of great value. That's the noun version. But the verb version is to treasure is to keep carefully, to protect, to keep safe. Uh, I, I love the Lord of the Rings movies and the books, and uh, you know Gandalf from that is the old wizard guy, and he discovers that Frodo, one of the characters in the story, has discovered this like super powerful ring, this magical ring that's gonna change the world, and he says, keep it secret, keep it safe. Why? That's what you do with the treasure. You keep it secret, you keep it safe, or you take good care of it, and you protect it. Treasure, treasure, treasure. Let me beat that into our heads today. Uh, I have a few treasures with me on stage. I meant to bring a table with me, I totally forgot. I keep my treasures in big rusty boxes. Uh, back in 2002, I think it was, my grandfather passed away. And uh, man, he's, he's a man's man, I love the dude. Uh, if there's somebody that I could grow up to be like, it would be him. Um, and just a couple months ago, I got this. This is an old toolbox of his. Um, and it was full of junk. You guys that have toolboxes, Keep them clean for your grandchildren. Um, they, they don't want your junk. Um, but so there's a bunch of junk I had to clean out. Uh, but man, this is like an old wrench that, that he had. If you know me, you know that I love to build. I love to do woodworking, any kind of handicraft. I spent all day yesterday working on my truck. Like, I love working. So to get my granddad's tools, this is cool. This is a treasure. And looking through it, it was neat finding little, like, stuff he had fabricated or just broken pieces of things. I'm like, ha, ah, smart dude. <laughs> I could have done something like that. You know, you look at that. This is something that I treasure. I love it. Now, this is another thing. On the other end, I keep all my treasures in big metal boxes. Um, I got this one, also from my granddad. My granddad was a preacher at a little country church called Scuppernong Church of Christ. And anybody heard of Cresswell, North Carolina? Yeah, baby. Uh, don't blink, you'll miss it. Um, and he was there at the same church for 46 years. Legend has it that my granddad would go to his study uh, late at night on Saturday every single night with a cigarette in one hand and an ink pen in the other, because this is when everybody was cool with smoking. And he would begin to be smoking his cigarettes and he would write out his sermon for the next day on these itty bitty note cards. And he would preach it. And then when he got done, he would staple them together and he would put them in a box. And I believe this box would be the majority. Look at this, this hieroglyphics. You cannot read that. No one can preach these sermons again. I don't know what that says. I don't know how he said everything he wanted to say on one index card this day. Um, but uh, looking through it, man, it's so cool to just see uh, some of the ideas that my granddad had, at least try to work through his hieroglyphics and his shorthand and his code. Treasures. They're treasures of mine. Now, showing you my two rusty old boxes teaches us something about treasure. It doesn't always have to have great worldly value, does it, to be a treasure? I mean... I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that would give me much money for any of this. I could probably make more money selling these tools for the, you know, recycling the metal than actually selling them. They're not super nice tools, 
but I treasure them. They're special to me. You probably have treasures in your life. Most people have people that they treasure, your spouse, girlfriend, uh, your kids. Uh, maybe for you, it's a thing that you have. It's a nice car that you love to take really good care of. I got neighbors who wash their car like twice a week. And it's like, dude, I'm pretty sure it didn't get dirty yet. And they're like, no, man, I just got to wash this thing again. Why? Because it's really important to them. They treasure it. Maybe for you, it's a vacation week that you look forward to every year or a couple of weeks that you can get away with some people that you like spending time with. Maybe for you, it's a family heirloom like I've got. You've got your great grandma's uh, engagement ring or you've got your, your old grandpappy's rifle, right? These are things that we treasure. These are things that we keep carefully. These are things that are of great value to us, either monetarily or in some other way. Today we're starting a new teaching series. It's all about us discovering the treasure that God has given for every one of us. And uh, I hid my book in here so I wouldn't forget to bring it. I'm basing my teaching this series this month on uh, a book called With by a guy named Sky Jathani. Listen, I highly recommend that you add this to your reading list this year. With, W-I-T-H by Sky Jethani. You can come look it up. He spells his name a little bit funny. You can you look it over here when you, uh, after service, you're welcome to do it. But this book takes it and explores the different ways that people approach God. I read a lot of books, and, and a lot of them, when I read them, I get done. I'm like, eh, it was all right. This one is one I've had just on the front of my mind for months now, so much so that I was like, this is how we have to open our 2019 as a church. We gotta talk about the concepts in this book. Um, The concepts of this book come from an observation that he made, and it's this, that everybody pretty much approaches God with one of four postures. And so we're gonna talk about those four postures today in order for us to understand the depth of where he's going and and ultimately, and I wanna say this, it is our goal every week to look to the Bible for answers to life's most important questions and to know and be known by God. And um, so, you know, no man-made book is is gonna just like always be our number one guide. But sometimes it takes a really well-thought-out believer to look at some concepts from the Bible and go, man, y'all should focus on this. And so that's kind of what we're using as a guide today. And we're gonna take today and unpack these four postures that Jathani talks about as people approach God. And my challenge to you as we go through it is uh, take some notes maybe. There's little note cards inside those things in your seats and ask yourself, where do I most likely fall? Where is the posture that I most take with God? The four postures he identifies are that we take a posture of life under God, life over God, life from God, or life for God. And I wanna say this off the outset too. Not one of those is necessarily good or bad. They're just a posture that more than likely, whether you believe in God or not, you take a posture with him in in this one of these four ways. And so as we look at these four different postures with God, each one can be seen kind of like an apple. And an apple that has kind of a, a peel on the outside, but as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into it, there's a core, and at the core of each of these postures, we're gonna find something slightly different. All of them pretty good, but none of them quite the treasure that God has in store for us. So let's just unpack these four today before we get into a whole lot of Bible at the very end. Uh, the first of the four postures is life under God. The life under God posture. If you take the life under God posture and you peel back the layers enough, what, what, what we find is kind of what most people for most of the world have believed, that at the core of life, there is divine will. 
Like out there somewhere, there's just a big, there's a big guy in the sky. There's a big something out there. And there's some divine will guiding everything. And that's not a bad starting point in approaching God, that there's a divine will. I want to find that divine will. But in the modern era, many uh, humans who take this posture um, will find that some things happen along with it. The concept is simple. Because we have fear, because we have doubt, these are the two things that often lead to religion, fear, doubt, and because we have a desire for control, we want to take what we believe about what God might be, that God just has a divine will, and we want to see what we can do to manipulate that. God exists. He has a divine will for the world. What can I do to sway that will in my favor? Like, I, I want to have some control in my life. Uh, God, in the Old Testament, gives the Jewish people his law. And so they're learning more details about God's will. And, but what happened, even with them, is when they found out what God wanted from them, they played that so hard that it began to take place of the true treasure that God had for them, which was him being present among them. And all they cared about was just living up to this law and being better than other people. So much so that one of the prophets said this, Isaiah chapter 29 said, these people, they come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. And by the time Jesus hits the scene, this whole predicament has gotten so bad where all people care about is swaying the will of God to their favor that Jesus says this, Matthew 9, 13, you go, you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And that might not, you can unpack that verse some more and dig into it. I recommend you look it up and read some more. But here's where I'm getting with this first posture. The life under God posture, it seems pretty appealing and it seems like a pretty good approach to God. There is a divine will at the heart of all things. And if I can do my best to hit the, the, check, the check mark boxes of God's will, then man, I can make God happy. And if I make God happy... He'll bless me, right? He'll give me what I want. I'm a big football fan. Last night, uh, football ended when the Dallas Cowboys lost. So I don't know what they're going to do for the rest of the season. I'm not sure what football is going to do. Um, but <laughs> I guess they'll, they'll muddle through. Uh, but a uh, story I was reading, Steve Johnson was a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills in 2010. And uh, in a game against the Steelers, he had made a catch, and, or he had a pass into the end zone, and that if he had caught the catch, he may have won the game for his team. But he dropped the pass. Boom. Butterfingers, whatever, I don't know. Okay? The Bills end up losing the game. Big surprise. But what he does is he runs to the locker room after the game, and he gets on Twitter like you do. And this is what he says. And he blows up Twitter in God's face. He's mad at God. This is what he says. I praise you 24-7, three exclamation points. And this is how you do me, three exclamation points. You expect me to learn from this, three question marks. I'll never forget this, two exclamation points. How, three question marks. Now, uh, first of all, he's got impeccable uh, use of, of, of punctuation marks. I got to give Steve Johnson that. I'm not here to throw Steve under the bus. I don't know his whole story. I don't know why he wrote that. I don't know if he wishes he could take it down. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. In the life under God posture, one thing that we tend to do is we try to influence God and we try to trade God. My good behavior 
for getting what I hope I can get from God. You know, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, and what? I can't even catch a pass in the end zone? My team was counting on me. And we want to throw a guy like that on the bus, maybe, maybe not. But how often do we feel that way? God, I'm doing everything right, and then I get this bill in the mail that I'm not expecting. I'm doing everything right, and then I, I, you know, my, my job lays me off. I'm doing everything right, and my car breaks down. I'm doing everything right, and my marriage is falling apart. I, I get it. I've been that way. I've taken this posture, but that's not how God works. The author of our book here, he says this, as much as we might want to control God, history has proven that he is notoriously uncooperative. And so the life under God, though, starts with a really good uh, mindset. Maybe it's not the strongest way to experience the treasure that God has to offer. Let's get to the second posture. We've done over God, under God. Let's do over God now, life over God. Life over God, that whole posture could probably trace back um, to a moment, a moment. We learned about this probably in middle school. There was a guy named Sir Isaac Newton, and I don't know what he was doing, but he was hanging out one day and uh, checking out an apple tree. Y'all know what happened, right? Apple falls. The way I remember it, it hit him in the head. Maybe that was just like a Schoolhouse Rocks cartoon I watched. I don't know. But uh, it, the apple falls. He looked at the apple falling, and he asked a question, probably the most common question ever asked. You have a two-year-old. You hear it every, t- every day a thousand times. Why? Why the apple fall? Great question, Sir Isaac. I'm really glad you asked. And so um, that led to a whole litany of questions. It led to question after question after question, which led to the development of the scientific method and a movement that we now call the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment has given us some amazing things. Medicine, travel, the ability to predict the weather. Like, these are amazing things. Cell phones, uh, all, all kinds of stuff have come from the questions asked during the Enlightenment. But before the Enlightenment... People just accepted life like this. Well, the world's complicated. And we're good with that. <laughs> That's, I mean, everything's a big ball of mess and uh, we don't, can't understand it anyway. The universe is a mystery. But then because of these guys during the Enlightenment who said, wait, 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 but, but why? Why? You begin to unravel the ball of yarn, right? And it has been amazing. And what you begin to do is you start to discover that at the core of maybe the apple of your worldview, you discover there's divine law at work. Or maybe, maybe you don't accept the divine law. Maybe you say there are principles involved of nature. And you know what? If we can unpack these principles enough, maybe we don't need God. It led in, in the Enlightenment era to a, a type of faith called deism, Deism, if you don't know what it is, is just the idea that, okay, maybe there was a God who was involved in creation, maybe there wasn't, but whatever the case, he's not involved now. He kind of winded the universe up like a clock, he set it up on a shelf, they call it the clockmaker God theory, and the whole idea is, you know, I don't know, but he's not involved now. At the core of the apple is not God's divine will. At the core of the apple is principles. And if we can unpack these principles... Now, at first, as I read that, I'm like, well, that ain't me. That's not the posture, posture I take. Like, I, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the guy who's doing that. But then I take a step back, and I think through the last, um, I've been a pastor for, I don't know, 17, 16 years, something like that. And, and I think about every, like, seminar and workshop and conference that I've gone through to learn about spiritual development and growth and church growth and things like that. And here's what I found, without fail, every workshop, 
that I sit in has got a guy, a genius, who has unpacked the three principles for solving whatever issue I need. You need more people in your community to know about Jesus? Oh, great, I got the four steps. You got people suffering with marriage issues in your church family? That's great. There are three simple steps. So there's a workshop you got to take. And at the core of every single thing, and I've been guilty of it myself, teaching from stages at this church, guys, if we do these three principles, you'll fix it, right? Now, two things. First of all, uh, sometimes those principles work. So maybe there's something to the fact that God does have some principles in place that if we follow them, life will go the way. But here's the other thing that's true. It's easy for us to replace the principles of God with the presence of God. That in seeking God, we actually don't find him at all. We just find some things that resemble things he would do. Not altogether bad, but I think it misses the mark of the treasure that God has for us, which is his presence in our life and the ability to know and be known by him. And that's what happens in the life over God theory. We get to a place where we're like, you know what? Maybe I don't need God as long as I can understand how everything works. That's the life over God theory. The, the third or posture, the third posture is this. It's the life from God posture. And this is something we see a lot in Christian circles today. I think a lot of times we uh, live it out without even realizing it. There's a religious studies professor at a Christian college in Chicago called North Park College. He does this cool thing. I would love to get a hold of this test he gives his students at the beginning of every semester. He calls it the Jesus personality test. And so it's got, uh, I wanna say 48 questions, I think. The first 24 questions are questions for the student to ask, what do you think Jesus's personality is like? So it would ask questions like, if Jesus was at a party, would he be more likely to be introverted or extroverted? Well, if he did this, would he be happy or sad? What would be Jesus's personality? So you answer all the questions based on what you think Jesus would do. And then the second half of the test is 24 questions that ask about your personality. And what the taker of the test doesn't realize is it's basically the same 24 questions. They're just reworded just to see how it goes. And so it said, you know, if you were at a party, would you be more likely to be introverted or extroverted? If this happened to you, would it make you happy or sad? What would you do? And you answer all the questions. Is this what the professor found? Almost without fail, when people finish this test and they, they do up the little algorithm to figure out the results, everybody has scored Jesus' personality to be just like their own. Isn't that crazy? He says this, the test results also suggest that though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus more like ourself. The life from God posture uh, is not new, and I'm gonna explain exactly what it is in just a second. In the 1700s, there was a French philosopher, his name was uh, Voltaire, and he said this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And we have been trying to repay the favor ever since. The idea that we look at God and what we most want to see is a reflection of ourself. That's the posture of life from your God. And it, goes, and it plays out like this. That if you peel back the apple and get to the core, what God most will bring me is something that will make me happy. Something that will make me happy. It's led to a lot of things. Probably the most prominent today is something that, uh, maybe you've heard these buzz phrases, health and wealth gospel. You ever heard that? Or, um, or uh, the prosperity gospel. And that's kind of a loaded phrase. I won't get into that because it, it could be divisive if I use it wrong. But the, the idea is that you've got this, if, if you have enough faith and you're good enough, you should never get sick and you will always be wealthy. It's, that's like, that's a super simplified version. 
And if you're sick or in poverty, you probably don't have enough faith. And so the worst iteration of this is we've seen, you know, scandal with TV evangelists and pastors who have done junk and tried to embezzle money and try to get all kinds of stuff because they really believe that I'm doing what God wants me to do, so I deserve to be rich. I deserve to have more. And it's, it's cool because I do believe God blesses people who are faithful. I have experienced in my own life, and sometimes it's monetarily, and sometimes he heals people from being sick. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes, and so I don't know where your faith is on that, but I've seen it. So I'm just stepping back and going, That's, I just, all I'm saying is I've seen it. I've seen it. But it also stands in contrast to the many times where Jesus and the apostles say, listen, if you're going to have faith in me, I want to warn you, you might have to get rid of everything you own to follow me. Or he'll say things like, you know what, among you there's going to be persecution and there's going to be suffering. And so it can't be 100% true that if we're in God's will that we're always going to be rich and healthy. That can't be 100% true because Jesus himself said that it wouldn't. But the life from God posture says this, the only reason I'm in this is because I want something from God. I call it the cosmic Santa Claus. And you got your list, and I want a pony, and I want all this stuff, right? And if I just, the only reason I mend it. But do we want God, or do we just want his blessings? That's the life from God posture. So we're just being self-evaluative this year. Is that, the, is that a word, evaluative? It is now, write it down. You say it enough times, they'll put it in the dictionary. 2019, and ask yourself, where do I fall? Over God, under God, from God. The last one is life for God, life for God. Um, I'll be honest, if you look around Venture Church or you've been here for long, uh, you'll probably find that this is the one that we most fall into as a church family. The idea is this. You believe that God has given us a mission. That sound familiar around here? Right? And so Jesus' last words to his followers before he goes back to be in heaven is he says, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you till the end of the earth. He says all these things, and we're like, God has given us a mission. We gotta go tell people about him. We gotta insert ourselves into people's lives so they can know about the light of God. And so there's this mission, there's this mission, there's this mission. So as a church, what do we do? Oh man, we're gonna get up early. We're gonna come set up chairs in a gymnasium. Why? I haven't quite 100% figured out why we decided that's the best method, but that's what we've decided to do because we're on fire. We're on mission for God. Okay, this is the life for God posture. We are church for people who don't like church. What does that mean? Uh, we want to tear down the walls that have kept people away from church and God so we can help build a bridge to God because it matters. We want to shine light in dark places. Does that sound familiar? That's the life for God posture. Not a bad posture. I believe every one of us has a mission with God, but here's, here's something about it. Um, I went to a small uh, Christian Bible college in northeastern North Carolina, and I remember being on campus with uh, just a whole student body of, of, of young adults who were in the for-God posture. And so they were training to be missionaries, and they were training to be nonprofit uh, managers. They were training to be preachers and youth pastors and, and all these things. They were training because they were living life for God, and they learned all the methods and all the principles to be for God. But you fast forward almost 20 years later, and something has happened. If I look back through that list of students that I was on fire with in those days, and myself is included in this list, there's also a list of students who have had all kinds of moral failure, all kinds of brokenness, a track record of falling into addiction and, and broken marriages and scandal and all this stuff. And you're like, wait, how did a group of kids that had their heads on so straight, how did all this happen? I'll tell you how, because we're human and that's what we do. <laughs> 
But on top of that, a lot of these people have just turned their back on their faith. Forget God. How do you go from living life for God to saying I'm done with God? Here's my theory. It is so easy to replace God with his mission. And you go, 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 trying to introduce people to a God that you've never really even met. I don't want us to be that people. I don't want to be that person. And so the life for God posture is a good posture. Like the rest, there's merit. But there's also caution. We need to live a life for God. There's no doubt. But I think there's a treasure worth more than that. I started out with a passage that Jesus said, and I want to read it to you again. This is from Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus was talking, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that whole field. Why? Because if he bought the whole field, he could also have the treasure. It was worth everything to him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had, and he bought it. Why? Because it was so valuable. It was a treasure. When God created man, it was because he wanted a special creation. He had creation. He had the universe. But he wanted a being that he could be in a relationship with, one that he could love and one that could love him back. He could have created us all as robots. But where's the love in that? And so God came down to earth Initially, he walked with Adam and Eve. Sin came into the picture, and that messed things up for their ability to be close. But you know what God did? He stayed close, and he made himself available to uh, the nation of Israel as that that whole progress began to grow. And if you don't know the Bible and you don't know the Old Testament of the Bible, it's fine. It's fine. I want you to stick around. Come back, and we talk about this stuff all the week. In fact, later this year, we're doing a series where we're going to do the entire Bible in five weeks. Whew. I'm glad I don't have to do that today. But we're going to do the entire Bible in five weeks. It's going to give us a big overview of like, what in the world is in this thing? But this picture of God saying, I'm with you. And then do you know the story of Jesus? This is what we talk about at Christmas. The whole thing about the baby in the manger, it's, just not, it's not just because babies are cute. Actually, babies are pretty gross. I, that's just my personal opinion. Um, I got a couple, so I can say that. Um, but it was because God wanted to be with us. What was one of Jesus' titles? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then when Jesus left to go back to heaven, do you know what he gave every believer? Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says it most clearly, that if anyone's been baptized, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives us his spirit to be with us. Sky Jathani, I'm going to quote him one more time. God's plan to restore his creation was not to send a list of rules and rituals. That's life under God. Nor was it the implementation of useful principles. That's life over God. He did not send the genie to grant us all of our desires. That's life from God. Nor did he give us a task just to accomplish. That's life for God. Instead, God himself came to be with us, to walk with us once again as he had done in Eden in the beginning. You know what the treasure is? The treasure is God himself, his presence. To experience him in our daily like mess, 
in the high, not just to get all glossed up on church some Sunday and be like, all right, I'm ready for God to see me now. No, but to be in the junk when you are just thrown up in the toilet because you're an alcoholic and you can't stop and you just, but God, I just, oh, I got to have you with me right now because I can't do this by myself. But when you've just had a throwdown fight with your spouse and y'all can't stand to look at each other and you're in separate cars driving in separate directions and in that moment, God can come and nurture your soul. And that he would surround us with a group of people that could love each other because we need a hug every now and then. And we might need five bucks every now and then. And we might need somebody to come help us work on our house when it got destroyed in a hurricane every now and then. God wants to be with us. And that's, that's the posture that this book suggests. Now, here's the cool thing. I barely gave away any spoilers for that book. <laughs> that's just the intro. And we're going to spend the next three weeks getting into what does it mean to live life with God? What does it mean to have that posture? What does it mean to be in that space where God is like present in our lives and then when we can't find him, we can kind of, you know, tune ourselves back in and find him again? Maybe you're here today and that's why. You're like, dude, I don't know, it's a new year. Let's just try church. Let's just try church, okay? Because I don't know. I feel like we should do it or maybe you've tried other stuff and it's not working. Oh, please don't miss the next three weeks. Come back and learn what it means to be with God. We're gonna be in a lot more scripture. But as we close up today, this is the coolest part. Not only does God want us to be with him, he has gone to great effort to be with us. There is nothing that Jesus has asked us to do that he didn't first do himself. And I'm gonna share with you just a couple of scriptures that uh, I, I recommend you write them down. These can be kind of devotional for you this week and you can read on uh, and dig into them later. But this first one's from Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Philippians two tells the story of what, it was like for God to have mercy on us and come to us. And it's, it was originally sung as a, uh, we sang some songs this morning. This passage was originally sung as kind of a hymn in the early church. And it exists in scripture today, so it's kind of neat. That's also why it kind of sounds poetic. It says this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, Paul's there. Why? Because he wanted to be with us. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, Jesus is God with skin on. God became a human. And so it's a little bit complicated to understand what has Jesus being elevated by God. It's, he's way beyond our scope to just simply define how all that works. But man, he wanted to be with us, so he made himself human. How many of you would change your actual form like, you know, I really love my dog. I know some of y'all love your dogs. They're wearing sweaters and shoes and stuff. It's fantastic. How many of you would become a dog so that your dog would know how much, yeah. Like, try just, like, I don't know, opening dog food with no thumbs. Like, you would be severely limiting yourself if you did that. But that's what God did for us. What would motivate anybody to do that? I got two verses that, that teach us something about that. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. 
Start at verse uh, one, second half of verse one to verse three. So let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What would motivate somebody to do that? He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as you continue to read through, what you realize is that that joy on the other side of the cross and becoming human and all that, the joy was that he would get to be with us. That was his motivator. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I can't imagine being able to find joy in becoming a dog or some lesser creature and then, and then, and then dying as that creature. You following me? But he's like, you know, it's all gonna be worth it. It's completely worth it because of the joy set before me, these people knowing me and being with me. Romans chapter five says it like this. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have spent my whole life in several of these four postures. All four of them at some point. Some of them on purpose, some of them without really realizing it. And maybe you find yourself in one of those postures. First of all, great. I think it's great to be in one of those postures because we're seeking God. (laughs) That's good. But here's the thing that I would hate to happen. For you to seek God and go hard, 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 hard looking for God in your life and miss him because at the core of that apple is not God. It's something really close, maybe something pretty good, but you miss out on his presence. God does give us blessings. God does give us natural law. He did create principles. He did give us a mission. But we can't make any of those things a substitute for God himself. So, where do we go from here? Let's be a people who are seeking the presence of God in a world that's not seeking that. Do you realize the difference that Jesus makes in lives. If we could just take a second right now to get people to line up and start walking up the stage and just let me tell you what God has done. He's gotten me out of addiction. He has helped my marriage come back to a place of solid uh, solidarity. He's helped me find joy in my career. He's helped me make a difference in my neighbor's life. He has brought me out of depression. He's brought me out of anxiety. He's taken away fears. He's done all these things. Boom, 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 boom. And in the end, that's still not even the treasure In the end, God, the creator of the universe, just wants to be with you. That's with God. Let's be a people who tell everyone that we know what God's done for us so that they can experience life with God. And if you're here today and you've got doubts and fears, maybe you're not even certain about where you stand with church, you might, seriously, I I say this as a joke, but it might seriously be true. You might have shown up thinking that the YMCA was open, and you're like, this is the weirdest Zumba class I have ever seen. (laughs) That dude is not moving very much. I want to tell you, I'm so glad that you came, and none of us have it figured out. But day by day, we're just trying to take steps together to be with God and with each other. 
Maybe you'd like to talk to someone today. That would be awesome. We're going to have a minute coming up in just a minute to, to, to do that if you'd like to. But let's seek life with God. Let's pray. God, you're good. And as we've unpacked this today, it's just reminded me of the power of your words. Um, I thank you for Sky Jathani and this book that he wrote um, that has inspired me to dig into your word more and to want to seek your presence. I thank you most of all for your word uh, that can guide us to your truth. But even beyond all that, I thank you for the true treasure, which is just the fact that you love us and you want to be with us. Help us to seek that. Lord, help us not to just seek, uh, I don't know, some gold star at the end of our life or a check box that says we went to church, or, but that we can know what it is to know and be known by the creator of the universe. Wow, that we would even have that opportunity. You are good. You are so good, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.